Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The Fed, inflation, and war in Ukraine all coming together. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, we had it all. A continuing war in Ukraine with Ukraine President Zelensky addressing Congress and President Biden. President Biden, you are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. As President Biden plans a trip to Europe next week to consult with allies. Oil shot up to over $130 a barrel, only to plunge below $100. If you have access to a chart intraday of Brent crude, pull it up right now. 97, 97 handle on Brent, then take it back a week or so. We've got a $40 plus swing on crude on Brent. Tom in a week, one single week, $40 swing. All of which were important to investors, but none as important as the Federal Reserve decision on Wednesday. When it made it official, we're moving from monetary loosening to monetary tightening. Every meeting is a live meeting, and uh, we're going to be looking at evolving conditions. I think that the, the, the Fed has largely abandoned monetary orthodoxy. It's trying to be too cute. Uh, in how it's it's managing this. And whether cute or not, markets took what the Fed had to say in stride, with stocks rising again on Friday, capping a risk-on week, with the S&P 500 up over 6%. That is the best week since November of 2020. And tech did even better, with Nasdaq higher by 8%, while bond yields, after shooting up briefly with the Fed's announcement on Wednesday, settled back down to 2.14 on the 10-year by the end of the week. Up a bit, but not that much. In the meantime, oil, after all those fluctuations, ended up with Brent around 107. 
take us through this volatile week. We welcome now Joanne Feeney. She's Portfolio Manager at Advisors Capital Management and Sanal Desai. She is Chief Investment Officer at Franklin Templeton Fixed Income. So Sanal, let me start with you because bonds were very much in the spotlight this week given what the Fed did and the reaction of the bond market. Did what the Fed say make sense to you? Mixed, I'd say. So here's the thing. What the Fed did, I think, was a smart thing to do. It validated what the market was already pricing, which was seven rate hikes this, this year. The reason I would say it's mixed is I look at the terminal rate that the Fed has, which is around 2.8, and it has inflation core PCE dropping with from the four handle this year down to 2.6 next year. So you've got rates barely positive. So that part to me, not sure, not so sure it makes so, so much sense. The seven rate hikes, I mean, it was almost, I would say, a no-brainer given that the market had already priced this. It would have been crazy for them to have missed that opportunity. I do think actually they've left the door open for more than seven rate hikes this year itself. And I'm very interested, and, I'm th and then I'm going to stop, I'm very interested in the fact that the market really isn't pricing any rate hikes for all practical purposes after the Fed is done with this year and a little bit. So clearly the market is still not taking the Fed very seriously on this. Joanne, what about from the equity side of it? It was really interesting to see the dynamics this week with uh, the Fed coming in as expected, but you know, lowering their growth forecast, for example and delivering that anticipated plan for seven rate hikes. You know, equities said, okay, that's what we expected. We've already built in uh, these kinds of rate hikes. And moreover, uh, the Fed has just confirmed a slowing growth environment, which, you know, equity investors, I think, were expecting. And what we saw, interestingly, as you pointed out, David, at the beginning, was NASDAQ actually went up more than the S&P, uh, showing, I think, uh, the beginnings of a return to more growth-oriented, tech-oriented stocks, because in a slowing growth environment, broadly speaking, where are investors going to find growth? You're going to have to find the names that have secular drivers, and, and a lot of those are technology companies. So now you referred to the projections for where rates are going to go, given where inflation is. How is inflation mm. going to come up so come down so dramatically if we don't get to positive real rates, as, real yields as a practical matter? Don't you have to have the rates above where inflation is projected to be? And is the Fed really planning for that? I would just say one thing. Hope is not a strategy. And I think the Fed's forecasts all right, their projections. Uh, and I think Joanne and I talked about this earlier. But, you know, uh, it depends on a very rapid resumption of supply chains to some form of normalcy, because I don't think that monetary policy at this point is going to be successful in bringing core PCE, uh, let alone headline PCE, down in the time frame the Fed is envisaging with the style of rate hikes that the Fed is planning. And yes, there is a growth slowdown. It's not, it, it is a slowdown, but it is not a recession. So uh, I think that is a part of what is going on over here that, you know, we're, we're not, I think the Fed is trying to tread that line of not freaking the market out. And it probably clearly very successfully did that. But I do wonder whether in June, when we get the next set of SEP and uh, dot plots, we're going to see something different. And it's going to depend critically on what we see on inflation over the next two, three months. Yeah, what Sonal points out there, David, uh, is, is the, the wide variety of projections by the FOMC members. If you look at those dot plots, unfortunately, we can't tease them apart and look at one 
person's projection separate from the others. But you see this incredible range. Uh, for example, you know, some folks saying they expect the, the Fed fund rates to end the year at 3%, others 1.5%. And, and that tells you there are a lot of different assumptions and, and understandings of what the dynamics are this year that are going to drive inflation, growth, and rates. Okay, so now Desai of Franklin Temple and Anne Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management will both be staying with us as we turn from what the Fed did this week to what investors should do in response. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Sonal Desai of Franklin Templeton Fixed Income and Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management have stayed with us so we can talk about what investors should do with the information that they got this week. Joanne, let's start on the equity side this time. Uh, what does an equity investor take away from this? What stocks do you want to buy? Maybe not so much, given what we saw this week. Yeah, you know, David, it really depends what sort of equity investor you are. What are you looking for? Are you retired and you want to be conservative? Are you younger or, you know, have reason to be more aggressive? There are really very different strategies here. So if we look at sort of the, the more conservative, maybe income-oriented, you know, I think you really have to think about having some defensive positions, some insurance in the portfolios, because global risks are elevated and they're going to stay elevated. And it isn't just Russia and the Ukraine. It's, it's COVID potentially. It, it's always, you know, other things. And so what's maybe new now is to have some insurance positions that go beyond sort of the energy, the banks, the real estate, the protection against inflation towards, you know, some of those things that will do well if this Russia-Ukraine situation really lasts a long time. What is it hitting? Commodity prices. So you can own not necessarily the commodities, but companies that are going to do well because of those higher prices that are going to persist for a while. For example, a caterpillar or a deer, which is going to see a big increase in the demand as, as more mining happens, right, as more countries go towards demanding food self-sufficiency, for example. So there are a lot of interesting ways to build insurance into portfolios in this kind of environment. But one shouldn't forget the reopening is still happening, and there are some reopening trades one can play if you're careful about the inflation exposure. In a growth portfolio, for example, we just added match as people go out and, and date more in person. Uh, we think that's a good one uh, for folks to, to, uh, to be involved with. And then there's the tech side. As we saw, some of the rebound has begun, and we think that's going to continue. But again, some of that is a little bit more on the aggressive side. So it really depends on the sort of uh, portfolio. Uh, we've owned these things, uh, a lot of them, for a very long time. We find it's very important to ride out the volatility in this kind of a market, but you want to make sure you're comfortable doing so. Uh, so now, not to put too fine a point on it, but on the fixed income side, why do I want to invest in bonds right now, given the fact that I know rates are going up? And if I do, which of the bonds I want to buy? So I'd say that for one thing, uh, there's always a place for bonds in portfolios. And certainly this is not the most attractive time to be heavily invested in long duration assets, because I certainly believe that we are going to see a steepening of the yield curve. I know that the markets are anticipating the yield curve actually inverting, which would be positive for long duration bonds eventually. But I would just note that uh, that seems to be assuming that the Fed is going to come in swoop in and bail the bond market out again the way it has every single time in the last 14 years since the global financial crisis when the market has wobbled. So I do think that long duration assets, there will be some interesting plays there because spreads have widened. They may widen a little more. But I but towards the end of this cycle, certainly a lot of those long duration assets become very interesting again. But right now, I look at floating rate instruments, so I look at the bank loan space. Uh, within high yield, we have seen spreads blow out, and certainly that 
allows us to go back in and find specific areas and sectors. And here I would actually say that a lot of what uh, Joanne said in t- from a sector perspective applies to fixed income as well, the reopening trades, looking at energy plays, etc. And the last thing I would say is when you do see commodity prices taking off the way they have, one has to remember that within the emerging market space, every country is not a loser. There are countries which actually do well when commodity prices go up and others that do badly. And so even in that area, I would say that there are places where I would say that you can hide. Otherwise, uh, stepping slightly outside my roundhouse, so to speak, I would say definitely it's worth looking at alternatives and in from the perspective of real estate and the classic slightly stagflationy trades, which would be commodities, real estate, places like gold, for example. And certainly, I think that you could uh, you could probably do with some inflation protection in any way you can find it at this point. Joanne, what about recession protection? Because we just heard Sonal refer to the flattening yield curve. Some people think it's going to invert, often an indication, depending on which part of the curve you're looking at, of a possible recession. As you, do you as an, event, an equity investor need to be taking into account the possibility of recession in your investments? Yeah, you want to give it some, some probability weights. Uh, you don't want to necessarily pivot in that direction. We think it's a bit early. We're just seeing such good uh, signs of strength in the U.S. economy. The big concern, obviously, is, is the war and, and how it might really affect Europe uh, if it goes on for a long time. But building the portfolio, what we've done for a long time is own stocks that continue to do well even in a recession. Um, there are some consumer staples, for example. Um, real estate holds up very well. And, and so you, you really do have to build that kind of insurance into portfolios as well. So it does, does depend on your time horizon uh, and your goals. And, you know, for example, you know, in the growth portfolio, you know, you're still going to be pretty a long duration as Sinal put it. You're going to still own these assets that are going to have a longer time to play through. Uh, and, and so in a recession environment or just a slowing aggregate growth environment, it's important for investors with a long enough horizon to say, well, where can I find growth? What's going to continue to grow even if there's a recession? You know, look at cloud computing. Look at data center expansion. This is still continuing and likely to do so through a recession. You know, look at software that is used for uh, information technology infrastructure and firms. That, those are the sort of companies, by the way, that are well protected from the wage inflation that may very well bedevil profits in more labor-intensive industries. And so that's a way to build in that kind of protection into a portfolio as well. If you look at real yield curves as well, if I look at inflation linkers, that's another market the Fed owns. <laughs> so, you know, it owns again a quarter of that market. So I, I tend to be a little bit more skeptical about the inflation signals, the duration of inflation, inflation expectations. I would just note that as we come to fall, if what we anticipate happens and people have seen 7 to 8% inflation for an extended or protracted period of time, the idea or the risks of a wage price spiral become far more serious. And that means that inflation might hold on for longer than the Fed would like or indeed any of us would like in the market, because that's not a healthy environment for any stocks or bonds. So, yeah, we've made it to the end of this discussion without a lot of discussion about the, uh, the war. So, Joanne, I'm going to give you the hardest job just briefly at the end. The markets seem to be looking past Ukraine right now. Are they premature or are they, or are they, are they onto something? Well, you know, when we look back at the markets and various wars and disruptions, recessions, pandemics, uh, you know, we do see that investors tend to recognize that wars tend to be temporary disruptions. I think there may be reason to believe that uh, the risks associated with this situation are, are more elevated, but they're in the tail still. 
And so I think investors are, are recognizing yeah. that the disruption, even if bad, is likely to be yeah. mostly focused on Europe yeah. well, uh, than here in the U.S. Well done, Joanne. You landed it, that hard assignment. Thanks so much to Sanal Desai of Franklin Temple and Fixed Income and also Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management. Coming up, inflation, Fed tightening, and a war in Ukraine. They've roiled the markets, so what's a central bank to do? We hear from Rick Reeder of BlackRock. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. February 24 marked the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Putin started a war with Ukraine, with the democratic world. Changing the lives of millions of Ukrainians. Civilian targets have been hit again last night. The emergency services in the capital city in Kiev have also been reporting hits on residential buildings. And resonating through economies around the world as the United States and its allies move decisively to impose a wide range of economic sanctions. We are enforcing the most significant package of economic sanctions in history, and it's causing significant damage to Russia's economy. But the world was already changing before Russian troops came across the border with Ukraine, with concerns over inflation higher than they've been in 40 years. We're not going to let high inflation become entrenched. The costs of that would be too high. And ongoing problems with the supply chain triggered by a pandemic that touched every corner of the global economy. It's just another headwind and, and a ripple through you know supply chains that are already very stressed. 
past. Um, we had seen some nascent signs of improvement in the supply chains, but you had seen that at year end and going into early this year. Uh, but I think all of this really gets uh, reversed because of the, the war. All of which poses a unique set of challenges for central banks like the Fed that have to respond to multiple crises when they are very close to the zero bound with their interest rates. We are starting this uh, Fed episode at the lower bound, as you mentioned. The last time inflation was like this was actually July of 1978. It was just under 8%, but short rates at that point were 8%, and the 10-year was just above 8%. To take us through what the Fed is confronting, we welcome back now Rick Reeder, BlackRock CIO of Global Fixed Income and head of the Global Allocation Investment Team. Rick, great to have you back with us on Wall Thanks, Street sir. Week. So as we just said, the Fed had a hard job before the war came up. <laughs> there are a lot of problems there. Now they got the war on top of it. In a nutshell, it's a favorite game. How are they doing? You know, David, I mean, listen, and I think Chair Powell alluded to the fact that they should have moved earlier. I mean, we're in it. You know, the Fed is behind the curve, significantly behind the curve. You know, now I think what's really tricky is how do you move? How do you move to the other side quickly and not disrupt the system so aggressively? So I think they're in a tough spot. In fact, I think this is the toughest spot I've seen a Fed in uh, maybe in my career. And so I so. Listen, I think, it, I think it's going to be a challenge. I think you've got an economy that, you know, I always say this, high prices are the cure for high prices. You're actually seeing an economy that's starting to moderate in a number of places. And I think the, I think the Fed has to try and be careful about not letting the economy slip into a recession while they're, while they're trying to deal with inflation. Listen, much of this inflation is supply shock driven. You know, when you go through some of these, you know, we talk about energy a lot. You know, the global wheat production, 34% comes from Russia to Ukraine. Pretty incredible numbers. You're going to see that flow through of food prices. So it's a challenging dynamic that's going to impact the economy for sure. And the Fed's got to got to run a uh, straddle a very fine line. So as you say, Rick, uh, high prices are said to be the solution for high prices. Uh, I'm going to put up a chart here for our television audience. We'll describe it for those of us joining us on radio. Uh, that basically illustrates that point in terms of real consumption, not nominal consumption, but real consumption, and the extent to which uh, really inflation at this point is outpacing the growth in consumption. It's pretty incredible, David. I mean, we went through this period, you know, with an explosive set of real growth of quantities, real growth of goods demand that as you as you emerge from the pandemic, people are buying cars and furniture, et cetera, I mean, across the board, electronics, computers, et cetera. Then now you get this spike higher in prices. And what you're seeing is a pretty extraordinary dynamic that now real real consumption is starting to come off, i.e. the cure for high prices, high prices, people start to pull back on demand. You're seeing this in inventory builds. Retailers are growing in terms of you're seeing inventory start to build. That will bring that will bring prices down. Consumer sentiments yeah. the, the lowest it's been in ten years. You know, desire a good time to buy a car, a house, durables are really falling precipitously. So, you know, this is part of that dynamic that the Fed has got to straddle this line and the consumers are gonna are gonna pull back. I mean, look at these numbers. I mean, it's pretty staggering. By the way, you're talking about these numbers falling off a cliff when the consumer is arguably in the best shape I've ever seen them in history. Savings rate is up, wages are up, hiring is up, and yet they're going to pull back and they're going to wait because these prices are, uh, are eye-popping high and, uh, and are going to wait for a, uh, for, a, for a better period of time. Particularly when, when, you, when you look at the consumption basket for lower and middle income, right. fuel and food, uh, shelter, where you're seeing the biggest price hikes makes it really tough for consumption to stay up. And yet, as you point out, there may be some good news in here that some of the middle and lower income people are gaining the most right now. 
So, I mean, this this is, you know, I think it's a very easy answer. And quite frankly, I don't think it's a complete answer when people say, gosh, the Fed's just got to keep raising rates and do it quickly. You've got to be really careful. If you think about what's happened the last few years, wages are moving up. You're bringing more people into the labor force. By the way, there's two million or so less people in the labor force today than pre-COVID. You need to keep cultivating that. Yeah, well, when Rick Reeder says it's one of the most extraordinary weeks in markets, you have to listen to him. <laughs> Rick, it's always so great to have you here in Wall Street Week. That is Rick Reeder, of course, of BlackRock. Coming up, special contributor Larry Summers wraps up the week for us. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back once again, our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, to help us wrap up this week. So, Larry, you've been calling for quite some time on this program and elsewhere for the Fed to really wake up, smell the coffee, and realize we need to be focusing on inflation. We need to increase interest rates. They took a big step in that direction this week. Was it enough? They did, and I was uh, glad to see it. I think they're recognizing that they're uh, behind uh, the curve. I think they've still got a long way uh, to go. They've got a long way to go in forecasting realistically. I just don't believe that it is plausible that we're going to have three years of 3.5% unemployment while inflation falls precipitously. Nor do I believe that inflation is likely to fall precipitously on a path where the nominal interest rate never gets within two percentage points of where the inflation rate is uh, right now, not at any point in the next uh, three years. I also think that the Fed needs to recognize that its 2020 framework was perhaps a good idea in the deflationary context of that moment, though I'm not sure it was, but it is surely not uh, got anything connected with our current kinds of uh, challenges. So perhaps institutions adjust uh, with uh, some gradualism, so perhaps we're moving in uh, the right uh, direction, but I think there's a long way to go, and I don't think the Fed has really done all that will be necessary to preserve its credibility in the face of the substantial inflation that I think is likely to come to us uh, in recent months. You know, I just had a chance to review what is the best data on wages, uh, the data from the Atlanta Fed. And depending on which of the indices you use, how you weight the data and so forth, on some measures, wage inflation is now getting close to 7%. And that is just not consistent with the kind of places uh, that we want to go uh, in terms of inflation. So, Laurie, to focus very specifically on inflation, which you've been asking us to do now, as I say, for over a year, if you take a reasonable projection of inflation out over the next year, two years, what kind of Fed funds rate do we need to get it down? I mean, clearly, we need to get into a positive real yield number. And what do you need to get the rates to be in order to really have the rates be higher than the inflation? Here's the problem with uh, FedThink, uh, David. They assume 2% long-term inflation, and then they say that the neutral rate is 24 
And then they say, look, we're going to raise rates to 2.7, so we're going to be above the neutral rate, so aren't we great? But the problem is that that whole calculation is based on the assumption that we're going to get inflation down to two, and they don't provide a basis for believing that. A simpler and more direct way to think about it is to say that when inflation goes up, if you just raise interest rates as much as inflation went up, then you're not changing real interest rates at all. If you want to tighten policy, you have to raise interest rates by more than inflation went up. We used to be a 2% inflation country. Now we're almost certainly a 6% inflation country, and on some measures we're an 8% inflation country. And so we've got to raise interest rates by more than four percentage points. Um, we've got to raise them by 4% to stay neutral. And uh, we probably have to raise them more than that. So I think ultimately we're going to need a four or five five percent uh, interest rates levels they're not even thinking of as conceivable. Now the reason for this is that they believe, as do many, to be fair to them in the markets, that the main problem with team transitory was the marketing, not the reality. So they think inflation is going to come way down without any action on their part to bring it down. Maybe uh, I see rental inflation, which is 40% of the core CPI, is likely to rise substantially uh, this year. I see uh, more bottlenecks coming as China gets into very substantial lockdown. I read a story about airline prices really taking uh, off as people start uh, to travel uh, again. There are numbers suggesting low medical care inflation prices, but every hospital in the country is desperately short on nurses and other medical personnel. So I don't think we can count on the transitory inflation view, and I don't think we can count on the restraint they're providing because by the standard measures, they're not meeting the test of providing any restraint on uh, their path. Right. And that's why I think we have a long way to go. One of the things that certainly people at the pump are feeling right now is the price of gas. And we had the president this week weigh in in a tweet, actually really saying, wait a second, the price of oil at that point was down to $96 a barrel. Last time it was there, it was only like $3.30 at, at the pump. Now it's $4.40. It must be that the oil companies are adding their profits. How about that economic analysis? You know, I wish the president got more help uh, from his economic uh, advisors. Those spreads between gasoline prices and refiner and refined prices vary substantially on a range of factors. There's lags between the price of oil and the price of gasoline. When natural gas is in short supply, when diesel is in desperately short supply, it affects the mix of products that refiners provide in ways that change uh, that spread. Maybe there is a basis for thinking that profits are being padded, but there's nothing that would support that in the president's tweet. 
And I haven't seen any analysis coming out of the administration or any place else that provided serious uh, support for that. Look, at a time when we have a war to fight, at a time when energy security is a central issue for us, at a time when over time we're going to have to cooperate with our energy companies on the necessary transition away from fossil fuels, I think we should be very careful about accusing them of bad behavior unless we've got clear evidence. Now, the administration may have clear evidence, and if so, I'll be the first to admit that and to want to look and evaluate uh, the evidence. But this kind of comparison that was contained in the president's tweet, I'm afraid, does not represent that kind of clear evidence. Larry, that's so terribly helpful. Thank you very much. That's Larry Summers, our special contributor here at Wall Street Week. He, of course, of Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. Cutting through the fog of war, the Prussian military strategist Clausewitz wrote of war being the realm of uncertainty where three quarters of the bases for actions were wrapped in a fog of uncertainty. And the war in Ukraine is certainly no exception to that. With Russia claiming the United States has secret chemical weapons in Ukraine, something NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg terms absurd. They are making absurd claims about biological labs and chemical weapons in Ukraine. This is just another lie. And we get wildly differing accounts of the losses being suffered. There still are some really, really severe images of people being killed, of shelling, of residential areas getting bombed. And how much do you see that fear in the Eastern European nations that feel incredibly vulnerable? They continue destroying our cities, killing our children, civilians. And uh, it speaks for one fact only, that uh, even if uh, we continue talking with Russia, uh, that does not have uh, an impact on uh, the behavior of uh, Russian army on the ground. The accusation about the shelling of the infamous maternity hospital in Mariupol and the shelling of the Mariupol theater and the fact that Russia is not allowing refugees to leave Ukraine, all these fakes have been refuted many times. At one point, Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov even denied that Russia had invaded Ukraine in the first place. We are not planning to attack other uh, countries. We did not attack Ukraine. And it certainly doesn't help that Russia has made any so-called fake war report a crime, driving Western journalists from the country. The media from outside of Russia has a difficult time uh, penetrating audiences and, and getting in. But even in the fog of war, sometimes a ray of sunshine makes it through. And that's what happened this week on live Russian TV when a news producer named Marina Afsyanakova burst onto the set in the middle of an evening newscast on one of the state-controlled broadcasts, holding up a sign condemning the war and saying simply, Poruski, zdjes vam vrut. They are lying to you. She was promptly arrested, interrogated, charged, and fined the equivalent of $280, at least so far. So at least sometimes, in some places, it appears that the truth can conquer even the fog of war. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. 
Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.